Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communication specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, September 19th, 2021. And we are talking about boosters. We are talking about uh, actually all sorts of things. Yeah, and it's a good thing we've kind of retired some of our other segments because there was a lot of things that I didn't find a lot of value in. So I probably would have eviscerated a lot of segments in Uh ratings or kind of we had the extended highlight lowlights. So we're just going to focus on the key points and at least for tonight, ignore the crappy parts. Well... I, I don't am, know about least. that. I mean, I definitely have more critical things to say. We'll we'll get to it. There's a lot of mediocre saying. segments, I guess is what I'm saying. Mm. And I'm not spending my time on that. Well, why don't you talk about which shows you took a look at Sure, today? yeah. So I looked at Fox News Sunday. I looked at This Week. And I looked at State of the Union. And I should note, This Week was hosted by Martha Raddatz. And the other shows were hosted by the regulars. What about you? What'd you look at? I took a look at Face the Nation. And I looked at Meet the Press. I feel like I haven't had those two as a pairing recently, so it was interesting. All right, well, let's jump right to it. Quality questionable. Brendan, what did you have today? So I had a questionable moment. I'm not going to say it's a little quality and a little questionable. I will be direct. This is a questionable moment from Meet the Press. And this is where the show decided to focus in on Trump's continued hold on the Republican Party. This is an important news story, but I feel like Meet the Press is starting to lose its grip on where the real story and what the real story actually is. Take a listen to these short moments where Chuck Todd is introducing the segment. Welcome back. We've just had two new indications of former President Trump's growing dominance of this version of the Republican Party. Yesterday, a few hundred people gathered near the Capitol for a rally that was in support of the January 6th insurrectionists. That came one day after Republican Congressman Anthony Gonzalez of Ohio, who was one of the 10 Republican House impeachers, decided there was no future for being an anti-Trump Republican, and he announced he would not run for re-election. He's a sellout, he's a fake Republican, and a disgrace to your state. Calling Donald Trump a cancer for the country, Gonzalez became the first of the 10 House Republicans who voted for impeachment after the January 6th insurrection to retire. The environment is very toxic. And um, especially, you know, the dynamics inside our own party, um, which have sort of stopped making sense to me in a lot of ways. Republicans are adopting Trump's language and tactics. They want to lock it down. No. We're not going to let it happen. If anyone is calling for lockdowns, you're not getting that done in Florida. We're talking about an invasion of our country. Homes are being invaded. In the California recall, Governor Gavin Newsom successfully ran against Republican frontrunner Larry Elder by running against Trump. He's the clone of Donald Trump. Worrying Republican Senate leaders that Democrats could use that same playbook in 2022 as Trump injects himself into key primary contests in states like Georgia, Arizona, New Hampshire, and North Carolina. So 
okay, this is talking about what's going on with Donald Trump's hold on the party, but it's not talking about why we should care, right? It's not saying Donald Trump represents a real danger to the foundations of our country because he has repeatedly shown that he does not really believe in democracy, does not really believe in the foundations of our institutions, and only believes in himself. And that the idea of an entire party embracing that stance, that anti-democratic stance, is tremendously disturbing and a huge story that goes way beyond Trump himself. But this story is only about the way it's framed, what we hear from Chuck Todd, and this is a bit from the intro and the conclusion of his package, what we get from this is there's a politician who failed to win his election, but still is exercising power over his party. But it doesn't talk about why we should care. What is the bigger story? So I think they're missing it. It's interesting you chose this clip because one of the segments that I was kind of thinking about or one of the conversations that I was thinking about that I'm glad I didn't spend much time on today in reviewing and kind of deciding if I wanted to talk about was a similar conversation on the panel on this week on whether or not Trump has a hold on the party. And if he doesn't, is it waning? And who does he have influence over? And they were using these like totally arbitrary metrics to determine whether he did or didn't from one sentence to the next. And I was like, so... There's nothing based in data here. You guys are just spouting off like there was a smaller crowd this weekend. So his influence is waning. Like it, it was just so such a waste of time of just like yeah. fluff. Yep. And I was just so annoyed that like it's literally nothing conversations like this that keeps him in the ether to like still be a topic of conversation when nothing is actually being discussed. In the panel you're talking about. Right, in the panel that I'm talking about. But it kind of reminds me of, you're like, but why do I need to care? Right. Like, the whole point of the conversation is often missing when we're talking about Trump. Exactly. Now, later on the panel, Maria Teresa Kumar from Voto Latino tried to bring this up and point it out. And Rich Lowry from the National Review quickly swatted it away without a lot of evidence. I do. But I also think that when you look at Republicans that are speaking truth, that what's happening right now in the Republican Party is against our democracy. The fact that they felt so emboldened after an insurrection of a fair and free election on January 6th, what would speak more to the American people is stay in the fight. Keep talking about the asymmetry that we're seeing right now between the Republican Party, because right now we don't have two parties. We have one party that believes in the democratic system and another one saying we're going to win at all costs. On Republicans and democracy, Republicans want to win elections. They're not an anti-democratic party. They, a lot of people want to look past January 6th because they feel it's being uh, thrust down their throat or they're being judged or they're being blamed for it, even if they had nothing to do with it and they, they opposed it. But they're not, it's not an anti-democratic party. That's just not true. So the conversation is clearly happening on the margins of the episode, but the entire structure of the episode beyond the discussions of the boosters was about this and yet it wasn't truly confronted in the main thrust of the of the pieces on the show so i really appreciate meet the press for keeping an eye on what trump is doing keeping an eye on the republican party and what is going on there but you have to not miss the main story and the main story isn't about trump 
It's what Trump represents. That seems much more relevant. So, Naomi, what uh, quality or questionable thing did you notice on the three programs you covered today? So my questionable, um, my example is from Fox News Sunday, but it's kind of also a ding on the other shows, too. Fox News Sunday covered, had like a sports segment as their power player of the week. There was a very powerful story in sports this week about four very brave young women speaking in a Senate committee about the epic failures of the FBI and other organization in keeping them safe in elite sports. Hold on. I'm going to guess that that was not the power player that of the week. That was not the power player of the week today on Fox News Sunday. There's no way that would ever be. Like, I don't even understand. L- let me play you the clip, the introduction, and like, <laughs> just. So insulting. This time of year, Sundays mean doing this program and then getting home in time to watch NFL football on Fox. A key member of the Fox Sports team is known for breaking big stories and now for his important work off the field. Here's our Power Player of the Week. Football is one of the only places where somebody could spill a beer on you in the first quarter and you're hugging them in the second quarter. It just brings people together. With all of them, Bringing people together is a passion for Fox Sports insider Jay Glazer. The NFL is back. Especially now that with COVID vaccines, stadiums will be filled again. Right before the start of the season, I went on a 35 NFL day training camp tour and the fans were back. And it was so great to feel that again. You really don't know what you have until you miss it. So the segment goes on to talk about Jay Glazer's work off the field, which he's doing a lot of work around mental health for athletes specifically football players but like overall it's just so tone deaf like so tone deaf the idea that like literally just days ago you had these brutal heartbreaking testimony from four women who one of which literally just represented our country at the olympics (laughs) simone biles yeah and you're gonna go with this sports story like and, and it's like the exact opposite. Like what I heard was all pure testosterone. Right. You know, oh, you're going to spill a beer on it. It makes me nauseous. And so this is the most blatantly gross example that I saw. But and they didn't mention the gymnastic story at all on State of the Union. Also did not mention the gymnastic story at all. I will give credit to this week. They did have a segment on it. And it was like kind of like the legal panel, you know, the the two legal experts that often go on. But I also didn't really agree with what they were saying. So (laughs) I don't think it's like the best example of how you could have talked about this story. It's an epic failure of the FBI. And to not have it as one of your top stories of the week, I think is really irresponsible. Well, it wasn't on either of the two shows I covered either. Yeah. One of which spent multiple segments talking about failures of government institutions right it's it's like when the failures are not so squeamish like <laughs> compared to ignoring allegations and evidence of sexual assault and molestation of minors then like oh we're gonna ignore that one okay i can't stand it so two questionable segments to begin here that is correct we're starting on a roll 
Brendan, I am talking about boosters today. What are you talking about? I'm talking about from questionable segments to Margaret Brennan's questioning. <laughs> in, and I have some questions about it. So why don't we continue with boosters? Maybe there's something positive there. I will start with the positive yes. So <laughs> so the big news this week. So the big news is that the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or ASIP. They are the advisory body that makes recommendations to the FDA on what they should be doing around vaccines and immunizations of COVID-19, but of all sorts of vaccines, right? They are experts in that field. And they met this week to determine whether or not everyone should be getting boosters as President Biden suggested. Based on how long it's been since you've had your second shot. Right, right. Just the whole thing. And their recommendation is no, the whole population doesn't need a booster at this time, but they do recommend it for people over the age of 65 and people who are high risk or immune compromised. They are actually going to be meeting again this week and are going to define what is high risk. So that's kind of what ASIP is, is doing. And Almost everything that the FDA and the CDC have done in this whole pandemic is going off of the direction of ASIP. Even though legally they don't have to follow those recommendations. Right. They don't have to, but they are the premier experts in this field. And if you're going to follow the science, you listen to ASIP. Side note, it's kind of annoying that the Sunday news shows never actually explain what this body is. They often say outside vaccine experts, outside medical experts. It's just like... Can we like explain like we've been in this like hellhole of a pandemic for almost two years now. Can we like be transparent on the process at all? Yeah. No. (laughs) No. So anyway, that was the big news that came out. And there's been a lot of hubbub because it's essentially not going with what the White House really wanted, which is everyone is eligible for a booster starting tomorrow. September 20th. Yes. Today, Monday, September 20th. So a lot of public health experts were on trying to do damage control for President Biden. I thought that Dr. Francis Collins, he's the director of the National Institutes of Health. He was on Fox News Sunday and he was the best. I mean, he did way better than Fauci and he did better than I have heard most public health officials in months. And I just really wanted to give him credit for how he responded to some of these questions. He has been a quiet, like, what is that term where it's like, Someone's really good at their job, but they're not like being celebrated and they're just kind of quietly doing their job well. Like he's been that on the Sunday shows for the last few months. So like I said, there was a lot of flack across the, I mean, not just on the Sunday news shows, everywhere about people, you know, the scientists not siding with Biden. And this answer from Dr. Collins on Fox News Sunday, I thought was just super smart and kind of cut through the BS. Here's what President Biden said last month. The plan is for every every adult to get a booster shot eight months after you got your second shot. Dr. Collins, is the advisory panel right? Do you now agree with them on this limited booster program over what the president was proposing last month, the the general population getting boosters, which he said was based on advice from his medical experts, including you. You know, Chris, I think there's less difference between where we were in the middle of August and what the advisory committee said 
this uh, past Friday, they did uh, encourage and vote for the administration of boosters to people over 65 and those at high risk of exposure. Those are the people who would be most likely to reach that eight month period because that's how we prioritized initial immunizations back in January. So I don't think there's huge differences here. I think the big news <clears throat> is that they actually did approve the initiation of boosters. And remember, they're taking a snapshot of right now. We're going to see what happens in the coming weeks. It would surprise me if it does not become clear over the next few weeks that that administration of boosters may need to be enlarged. Based upon the data that we've already seen, both in the U.S. and in Israel, it's clear the waning of the effectiveness of those vaccines is a reality and we need to respond to it. But they looked at where we were on Friday and said, here's where the data is convincing to start now. And we'll see what CDC says later this week. So I thought that was just such a smart answer to say, like, this is exactly where we would have been anyway. Eight months later are the ones who were first vaccinated, which are the priority still. Right, yeah. It's And, it, and in answering it that way, he insults nobody. He upsets nobody. It's blatantly true and it was just I, I just found it so smart it's so different from the headlines though isn't it exactly and i have an example of a fauci answer which i thought was mediocre at best and then speaking as i mentioned about transparency and how nice it would be if news organizations trusted americans to understand this virus in a deeper way or the treatment and therapeutics that are offered I thought that Dr. Collins also had a really great answer about how the process and evidence changes kind of our direction and our priorities in this pandemic to begin with. Now, back during the campaign, he talked a lot about follow the science. Isn't announcing a specific date and a specific plan for the general population before any of the regulators, the FDA, the CDC have approved it, isn't that the exact opposite of follow the science? Well, he was basically responding to um, a statement made by eight physician scientists, including me, including the head of the FDA and the head of the CDC, saying we had looked at the data and it looked as if boosters were going to be a good thing for Americans to start to utilize. Recognizing in that speech, he did say CDC and FDA's advisory process has to kick in first. You know, I guess I'm a little troubled, Chris, about all of the buzz that's happening right now about whether the process was perfect. Of course, it's not perfect. No process ever is. But have we lost track of the goals? The goals here are to try to protect Americans from dying from this disease. 670,000 have already. It does look from the review of the data by people like myself that we are going to need to provide boosters for people at risk in order to keep this surge uh, from beginning to affect even those who are fully vaccinated. We're trying to do the right thing trying to look at the data as it evolves, recognize things are changing day by day. Maybe we ought to be talking more about that than about whether the president said this a month ago and FDA said this on Friday. Let's try to get the science right and do it transparently and openly so everybody sees what the process looks like. Man, speaking to my heart right here. <laughs> <laughs> just like, can we get past the headlines and just like keep people alive? Like that would be great. Yeah, I also like that he's like, Stop with this idea that Biden was not following the science when eight physician scientists are the ones who told him that he should make this announcement. Or it seemed likely that we're going to go down this path. Right, right. Now, in comparison, Dr. Fauci was on this week in State of the Union, and I, like, it, he wasn't wrong about anything, but he wasn't 
nearly as convincing as Dr. Collins on Fox News Sunday. Take a listen to State of the Union when Jake Tapper asks him essentially about this 180. Dr. Fauci, you've been a proponent of booster shots for the general public, but the FDA advisory committee overwhelmingly disagrees with you. Do you think that advisory committee made a mistake? Do you think the FDA officials should ignore the advisory committee's recommendation? No, not at all, uh, Jake. I don't think they made a mistake, and they, the FDA absolutely should not ignore them. As we said in the beginning, we would want to plan for the possibility of vaccinating all those who have gotten their initial vaccination with Pfizer, and it was always pending the evaluation of all of the totality of the data from the United States, from Israel, and any bit of data that we could get by the advisory committee to the FDA. They did that in the proper deliberative process and they came up with a recommendation, which I think is a good recommendation because if you look at everyone over 65 and people from 18 to 64 with underlying conditions that make them more likely to have a severe outcome and those who are 18 to 64 who by either institutional or occupational situation put Mm -hmm. them at a higher risk for exposure and infection, you're going to get a pretty good chunk of the population. So I I don't think they made a mistake. But the one thing I think people need to realize that data are coming in literally on a daily and weekly basis. And the decision based on the data that was seen by the committee was a decision that we've just mentioned. They're Mm going to continue to look at this literally in real time. More data will be coming in on both safety for younger individuals, efficacy both from Israel, other countries, as well as our substantial cohorts that the CDC is following. I'm not feeling confident after that answer. Are you? It just kind of wandered all over the place. There's no strategic focus to say, like, we're still on track. We're just prioritizing key people right now. Right. And that's, we're totally in line with that. And then you could just like shut down this whole headline buzz. Yep. It's just really ineffective public health messaging. Speaking of vaccine and boosters, I wanted to also highlight an interview that Jake Tapper had with Governor Tate Reeves. He's the governor of Mississippi. And I, <laughs> I was surprised he agreed to come on. Jake Tapper in this interview really questions the authority and judgment of people who have policies that keep Americans unsafe. Take a listen to this first clip in which Jake Tapper makes the comparison of how Mississippi would be doing compared to the rest of the world. Let's talk about what you and the legislature in Mississippi is doing, because I'm sure I don't need to tell you, Mississippi this week became the state with the worst number of coronavirus deaths per capita. In fact, If Mississippi were its own country, you would be second in the world only to Peru in terms of deaths per capita. That's a horrible, horrible, heartbreaking statistic. So with all due respect, Governor, your way is failing. Are you gonna try to change anything to change this horrible statistic from what you're doing already? 
Yeah, well, obviously, the, in Mississippi, our legislature is a part-time legislature. Sometimes I wonder if in, a, in America, if our Congress was part-time, we wouldn't be in a better position. But let's talk a little bit about better position than Mississippi what? and where Your we state are with is the second virus. Wor- <clears throat> second worst in the world. I mean, I, I, how can you say that? Let's talk about where we are. So that gives you an idea of, just to start, Jake Tapper just laying the comparison, but also just like, completely not understanding the governor's like complete disregard for the severity of what's happening in Mississippi. In this next clip, you'll hear Governor Reeves try many ways to downplay the severity of outcomes in Mississippi. My question is, what are you going to do to change this? The best way, the best thing for Americans to do to protect themselves from the virus, and again, we believe in personal responsibility. Individual Americans and individual Mississippians so you're not can take, change make good decisions to take care of themselves. The best thing that Americans can do, number one, is to uh, talk to their doctor about potentially getting the vaccine. Because in right. our state, some 89% of those hospitalized and some 87% of those who are, are uh, of the deaths are actually coming from those who are unvaccinated. So the number one thing that you can do is you can get you can talk to your doctor about getting vaccinated. The number right. two thing is if you get the virus, and this is very important, if you get the virus, please talk to your doctor about the monoclonal so you're not antibody doing treatment. You're not that is the best anything. way in which to do that. And unfortunately, the Biden administration continues to try to reduce the allocation to red states like Mississippi and Florida of that monoclonal antibody okay, treatment. Okay, okay. It, Governor, it's, it's outrageous. Governor, if Mississippi were a country, you would have the second worst per capita death toll in the world. And I'm saying, are you going to do anything to try to change that? Jake, as, as I mentioned earlier, deaths, unfortunately, are a lagging indicator. Our total number of cases went from 100 to 3,600, and over the last two weeks has declined. They have been cut in half from 3,600 to 1,800. When you wanted me to come so you on think three or four so weeks you think ago, this you want to talk successful? about our number of cases, and then you want to talk about our hospitalizations. Now you want to talk about a lagging indicator, uh, which uh, is sad and, and it's I'm trying horrible. to talk about and dead I, I, Mississippians. Is what I'm trying to talk all about. All 9,000 Mississippians that have passed away. But let's put this in perspective, Jake. I mean. The reality is Mississippi accounts for 1% of the U.S. population. We account for 1.1% of the total number of cases in America, and we account for 1.29% of the total number of fatalities in America. Well, if I lived in Mississippi and had someone who died from COVID, hearing this from my governor would not be reassuring. This idea that dead Mississippians are just a tiny sliver and so we just have to kind of get past this like wave of deaths from the surge. It's just th- how how is that acceptable at all? And I, I really appreciate here what Tapper's doing, and it's what we have praised recently Dana Bash for doing, which is holding these public figures accountable to do something, not just to give an update, not just to answer some questions or how they feel, but as Jake Tapper says here directly. Are you going to do anything to change that, that that death toll? Are you going to do anything about it? Multiple times he says that. And this isn't even the full extent of the back and forth trying to figure out if Governor Reeves is going to do anything. And in the end, he's, he has no solution other than just to wait this out. So then, like, why is he even going on why TV? Why is he on the show? Yeah, so there was a part where he said... <laughs> 
there's a part where he says that later in the back and forth, Governor Reeves says questions why Jake Tapper isn't talking to the governors of Kentucky or West Virginia or North Carolina. And he's like, maybe it's because they have Democratic governors. And, <laughs> and he's like, but you're the governor of Mississippi. I'm going to talk to you about Mississippi. <laughs> it was... Just, and he's like, also, the governor of West Virginia is Republican. <laughs> it's like, it's so ridiculous. I mean, I don't know. Maybe Governor Reeves and Governor DeSantis, like, take turns. It seems like they were trying to kind of have the same talking points. It's just unnerving. But looks like good work by Jake Tapper yes, here. Yes, very good work on this follow-up. And and again, like you're saying, trying to pin them, pin them being elected leaders, especially in executive office, about what they're doing and how they're using all their authority and power. Extremely important work. Brendan, you had some comments about Margaret Brennan. Yes, so getting back to what I was saying, so in my segment, I want to look at Margaret Brennan's questioning because I felt like there were some questionable things that she did in her questioning on a variety of topics throughout her interviews on this episode of Face the Nation. So to begin with, let's go to back to Afghanistan, the story of Afghanistan. Now, there were some really disturbing information that we learned last week, and that is that one of the key drone strikes that took place right around the time of the U.S.'s exit from Afghanistan that we were told had taken out a lot of terrorist leaders ended up having killed no terrorist leaders and led to the unnecessary deaths of civilians, including children. So let's take a listen to Margaret Brennan's discussion with David Martin. He is CBS News's senior national security correspondent. And let's just hear a little bit of their exchange so you can get a sense of where Margaret Brennan was coming from during this interview. There were some big developments on the national security beat last week, including the Pentagon's admission of a tragic, deadly mistake by U.S. military commanders last month as Americans were pulling out of Afghanistan. For more, we turn to CBS senior national security correspondent David Martin. David, it's good to have you here. You heard Senator Sanders say how badly this reflects uh, on the country in the eyes of the rest of the world. But policy-wise, doesn't this show also a flaw with the president's over-the-horizon strategy reliant on strikes like this. Well, this is the heart of the matter. Uh, What happens in Afghanistan matters here in the U.S. only if al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups there are able to make a comeback. The U.S. says it's going to prevent that with uh, surveillance conducted from outside the country, drones flying from outside the country, what they call over the horizon, um, and that they will be able to detect a, uh, a plot in the works and then um, be able to disrupt it with a, with a drone strike. But you have to say this uh, mistake made uh, in uh, Kabul is not an encouraging uh, precedent. They had six drones over Kabul that day, six. So now everybody's gone. They have to operate these drones from outside the country. So the main thing I'm getting from Margaret Brennan's questioning here is that it's not necessarily just about the operational situation, like this specific mistake, but she is 
reading into this single instance a much larger point where she is questioning the general policy of President Biden's way of protecting the homeland after our withdrawal. And instead of keeping troops there, as the commanders, but very few Americans actually wanted, Biden decided he was going to keep no troops there, but have capabilities called over-the-horizon capabilities where they could strike at terrorists from far away. So Brennan's calling into question that policy decision by Biden. But the issue that I have here is is manyfold. Number one, that is one instance, right? One instance that she is drawing and saying, look, this calls into question the entire policy, this single instance that took place. First of all, one instance does not make a trend, right? One instance does not tell us whether this entire policy is useless. Number two, that one instance wasn't even actually this policy because it was while we were still there in the country. Like there were six drones there, as David Martin said. This was before we had left the country. So it's using the tools you would use for over the horizon, but it wasn't actually that strategy in action. And then the other thing, and the thing that draw, drives me crazy, is that she keeps questioning this decision that Biden made to use this over-the-horizon strategy without mentioning what the alternative was and going deep into what that alternative means, which is a continued presence of troops on the ground in Afghanistan. They briefly discuss it, David Martin and Brennan, but Brennan mischaracterizes the situation and Biden's decision-making to the point that David Martin has to correct her. Take a listen. In this new book, Peril, that just came out, Uh, There's extensive reporting about the decisions on both presidents regarding Afghanistan. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the chief military advisor to the president, said, don't do it, don't do it this way. And the secretary of defense, General Austin, said the same thing to President Biden, and he dismissed it. He didn't dismiss it. He listened. They all give him credit for listening. Um, But he just wasn't buying it. He just did not believe that it was worth the candle to remain in Afghanistan. So did you notice, Naomi, how Brennan even phrases this? That the Joint Chiefs, the head of the Joint Chiefs, said to the president, don't do it, don't do it this way. Do you hear how vague that is? This over-the-horizon strategy? Without mentioning what the alternative is. It's like the alternative is keeping all those troops in Afghanistan continuing the war going on indefinitely. But she's not even mentioning that that's what the alternative was. Nor is she recognizing that, okay, if you are truly concerned about these civilian casualties in Afghanistan, you should at least acknowledge that, yes, maybe this over-the-horizon strategy isn't great and could lead to mistakes with drones that lead to civilian casualties, but this doesn't even recognize that, our long-term presence in Afghanistan, when we actually had boots on the ground, the strategy that Brennan is saying is the alternative, resulted in civilian deaths too. It resulted in, according to the AP, 47,000 civilian deaths. That is troops on the ground. So yeah, this over-the-horizon capability might result in civilian deaths, but there's no evidence that it would result in more or be more deadly for civilians 
based on one instance when the alternative is 47,000. So the alternative strategy that you're saying did not solve the problem of reducing civilian casualties. So like, what are you concerned with? Are you concerned with the civilian casualties or concerned that they didn't get the person that they were supposed to strike? Like, what is the stance that you have here? It just seems like her stance is to poke holes in Biden's decision-making without truly confronting what the alternatives are for the audience to consider. This is really interesting in comparison to an interview that was on this week with Martha Raddatz. She interviewed the former Joint Chiefs Chairman, Admiral Mike Mullen, and had very similar conversations, but it was based off of kind of what is your take as a former military leader or, you know, people, someone who had to answer for types of various military mistakes. And they were the responses, the questions and the responses were both so much more specific than what you have shared, Brendan. And I I didn't pull the clip because I I wasn't planning on talking about it. But I remember there was at one point he talked about over the horizon is doable, but the setting in which this drone attack took place was in the least stable environment to be able to do that, right? Like at the same time, they're trying to evacuate flights. At the same time, they're trying to find people to try to evacuate them. Like it was in the most chaotic situation and they tried to make a decision and the decision was wrong. Yeah, But that's not the state in which all drone attacks are made right and that you know and he's like and and he acknowledges mistakes were made before as well even in those other circumstances too and so it is both remorseful but gives that context as to this is how this mistake was possible because of the environment that they were in essentially and it's just interesting because it's so different right right, yeah martha raddis is like like just as margaret brennan upset with what happened and you know how did this happen? And like, what does this mean? Like, how do we trust this type of new type of intelligence gathering if we're going to make mistakes like this? And the the ease of the different responses are, are very different. Well, yeah, I mean, on your program, someone would walk away thinking this was a mistake because of the chaos on the ground of us on the ground. Whereas someone watching Face the Nation would say this was a result of us being over the horizon. Right. Those are two, those are the exact opposite exactly. takes on this situation. So the other example I want to bring up related to Margaret Brennan's questioning is an interview that she did that we have previously praised her on this type of interview. And that is an interview with the CEO of United Airlines. Now, in the past, we have said, this is great. What a breath of fresh air to have industry leaders and other voices from our country, from our economy, talking about the news, what's going on, what's important, instead of just a bunch of politicians and elected officials and advisors. That's great. Great to see on a Sunday show. But I think there is a problem. You can sometimes see a problem arising here, and that is how this interview is conducted, how tough the questions are, and whether they are too deferential to these leaders, like these leaders are being treated simply as subject matter experts instead of as people with true responsibilities and a hand in and power to make change. Take a listen to a few of the questions that Margaret Brennan asked 
the CEO of United Airlines, Scott Kirby today. United has said 90% of your employees are vaccinated following your uh, mandate. What about contractors? And for someone buying a ticket on your airline, how confident can they be they won't run into someone unvaccinated? So right off the bat, it, it sounds like Margaret Brennan is asking kind of a tough question if you if you listen carefully, right? What she's asking is about how many employees from United Airlines are vaccinated and what that means for the safety of the general public, right? The general public might be interacting with United Airlines employees. So is it safe for the general public to interact with your employees at United Airlines? But the wording is all wrong. I mean, look at the wording of this question. How confident can the public be that they won't run into someone unvaccinated? It's, it's such a soft question. The harder question is, why is it acceptable to you that one out of 10 of your employees are unvaccinated and interacting with the public? You know, like, why, what are you doing to make sure that all of your employees are vaccinated and following your mandate? This is such a, it's just such a, like, it's such a passive question. And it is the last question that had any suggestion of criticism or was in any way demanding for Scott Kirby. And by the way, that was question number one. Here are some of the others. Uh, Would you advise the administration that they roll out another wave of mandates, this time for passengers? You know, if TSA screens you to make sure you're not hurting your other passengers potentially, should they also check your card to see if you're vaccinated? When it comes to data and science, uh, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, uh, the former FDA commissioner, has argued that the Biden administration's travel restrictions that they've kept in place on Europe, on India, on China, other countries, they don't really work. Um, have they given you a timeline on when those restrictions will be lifted? So you're for the 1.2. When it comes to the $3.5 trillion spending bill, there's also some climate change-related provisions tucked into it. Um, we talked about that with Senator Sanders. But for yeah. you in, in private business, is, is it just so expensive to make some of these changes on your own that you need American taxpayers to provide tax credits and to provide incentives for private businesses to go green? Around the world. So for you, the benefit outweighs the risks here of spending that much money. So there's a little tour of some of the questions Margaret Brennan asked the CEO of United. Margaret Brennan, I think, wasn't she like an economy reporter at the start of her career? Like These questions are very strange. It's almost like an invitation for him to lobby his own company to the public and to Congress, like right here, basically say like, here's what I feel. Here's what's important to me. I like this bill. I don't like that bill. It's like, could you imagine somebody like in the time of the railroad barons, if they were Sunday shows at that time, going up to the (laughs) railroad barons and saying, how do you feel about this bill in Congress? How do you feel about that bill in Congress? It just seems like, is that really the hardest hitting journalism we should be having? Just like treating these CEOs of these massive companies with a platform to, I mean, he's already got a platform. He's got billions of dollars. He's He's got lobbying power in Congress. He's not like dying for access. Right. So it's kind of weird to get his take on some of these things. And I don't really truly understand what the news value is of that for a Sunday show. Maybe a trade publication, an industry trade publication, 
And again, it's not necessarily the case that none of these topics are relevant to discuss with the CEO, but the questions treat him as a subject matter expert rather than as somebody who has power, responsibility, control, and who should be held accountable for the decisions that he is making. So it's definitely going to open my eyes whenever she has any of these sorts of outside industry interviews again to look a little more critically at the types of questions that are being asked, whether they're actually difficult and whether they try to hold business leaders to account, just as we hope that she would hold political leaders to account. Absolutely. And sometimes they're great interviews and sometimes they're really off the mark. Yeah. But that's not to say that there weren't valuable interviews on Face the Nation today. One of the most valuable ones, not surprisingly, was the one with Scott Gottlieb, but it was a special interview. And I think it's worth noting that Gottlieb has a book coming out this month. It's called Uncontrolled Spread. I'm very interested in reading it. Gottlieb looks a lot more at the system of our public health infrastructure and how it might how it failed us rather than just writing a straight continues to fail us right rather than writing a straight sort of memoir of his experiences so margaret brennan had a special extended long interview with gottlieb looking more broadly at things outside of just the latest news story there were probably about 10 to 15 minutes of the interview on Face the Nation, and there is an extended version online, and also they released it in their podcast feed. It is 80 minutes long, and I do want to point out just this one clip that aired on Face the Nation to showcase some of the good value there. Schools is a perfect example of the lack of effective policymaking. So the single reason why most schools remained shut was because the CDC was telling them they had to keep kids six feet apart. If if CDC had said you can only you have to keep th- kids three feet apart, then a lot of schools would have been able to open. And in fact, when the Biden administration wanted to open schools in the spring, this past spring, they got the CDC to change that guidance from six feet to three feet. And you're right. The six feet was arbitrary. The six feet was arbitrary in and of itself. Nobody knows where it came from. The initial recommendation that the CDC brought to the White House, and I talk about this, was 10 feet. And a a political appointee in the White House said, we can't recommend 10 feet. Nobody can measure 10 feet. It's inoperable. Society will shut down. So the compromise was around six feet. Now, imagine if that detail had leaked out. Everyone would have said, this is the White House politically interfering with the CDC's judgment. The CDC said 10 feet. It should be 10 feet. But 10 feet was no more right than six feet and ultimately became three feet. But when it became three feet, the the basis for the CDC's decision to ultimately revise it from six to three feet was a study that they had conducted the prior fall. So they changed it in the spring. They had done a study in the fall where they showed that if you have two masked individuals, two people wearing masks, the, the risk of transmission is reduced 70% with masks if you're three feet apart. So they said on the basis of that, we can now make a judgment that three feet is an appropriate distance, which begs the question, if they had that study result in the fall, why didn't they change the advice in the fall? Why did they wait until the spring? This is how the whole thing feels arbitrary and not science-based. So we talk about a very careful science-based process, and then these anecdotes get exposed, and that's where Americans start to lose confidence in how the decisions got made. That's just absolutely insane. And it is a, an extremely important insight and a reflection on what a mess this entire pandemic has been and what it has exposed about our government and our healthcare infrastructure, our public health infrastructure. So definitely value on Face the Nation today and definitely worth looking into Gottlieb's 
book or at the very least that interview the extended, the extended interview. interview yeah absolutely well i think for today's dialogue challenge just going off of that little clip from the gottlieb interview brendan i'd be curious to have a conversation with you know family and friends it's thinking of what is something that you live by or has been a guidance for you just more broadly and what is based in data and what is based off of what and what is totally arbitrary right like i'm just thinking i don't know i i I saw some article about like how much water you're actually supposed to drink and i was like i can't read it like i i can't handle another article about like actually what you thought about your health was not totally based on whatever you know it was like it was one of those moments where i was just like i'm not ready i'm not like emotionally ready to like hear disputing evidence but it's it can be interesting to challenge the foundation of your assumptions yeah and there's a lot of those out there for sure yeah and they can be fun ones they don't have to be so serious like a pandemic but it'd be interesting to kind of have a little challenge with like your family or your coworkers. Absolutely. I mean, it can really change the paradigm and how you think about things. You can always share your thoughts with us at podcast at polylog.com. You can follow me at Beastidal on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Naomi underscore. You can always follow the show at polylogcast. Thanks, everyone. And we will talk with you next week. Bye. Bye.